Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. We're on episode number 23 today, and we interview Mike Wicks, who is a professional ghostwriter, and we talk about some of the more interesting and fascinating clients he worked with. He has some great stories that are hilarious and funny. Uh, You're in for a real treat in this episode. Mike comes from a background in publishing. He worked at some major publishing houses in the UK, specifically in selling um, books. Uh, He came to Vancouver. Uh, He started his own publishing company before starting out as a ghostwriter. We also talk about his writing routine, uh, his meditation and mindful practices, which is really fascinating. Uh, So great episode with Mike. Hopefully you enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Mike Wicks. Hello, Mike, and welcome to this show. It's a pleasure having you. And a pleasure to be here, Joel. Awesome. So you are obviously a um, very experienced writer. Uh, you've worked in the publishing industry for a long time. Can you tell me about your journey from publishing, working at Random House, and um, where you are today and, and your writing career right now? All right. Well, <clears throat> I, books have been my life. Um, I started with uh, my first publishing company uh, at 18 as a junior uh, trainee sales representative, selling books to, to stores. Well, in actual fact, my first job was probably merchandising books rather than selling them. And um, I sort of came uh, through publishing from, from the ground up. Um, and to fast forward, uh, I went uh, through from trainee rep to uh, getting my own territory, uh, moving around. Uh, this was all in, in England, uh, moving around the country with different territories, uh, getting bigger, better territories, becoming an area manager. Uh, and then um, the big change, uh, this was with various publishing companies. Random House was right at the very, very end of my career in mainstream publishing um, but I uh, at one point I, I was working for a company called Century Hutchinson which was the company that Random House actually purchased um, when they came to came to England they had set up their own company but uh, they needed the infrastructure and the, the backlist of a mainstream publisher so they they, they purchased us management uh, uh, in a complete sort of takeover. Um, but I was working uh, in, a, in a, a territory in the north of England and I got it down to a point where I could do all of uh, my, my um, uh, circuit of customers uh, with any given subscription period um, within five weeks uh, and we were given six weeks to, to do that circle. So in the sixth week, I started to look at um, 
other places to sell books that were not bookshops or libraries. And so I started going into wholesalers. Um, um, this was, I think, pre-Costco, so, but, but similar to Costco type stores. I go into pet stores and sports, uh, uh, sports retailers and, and all this sort of thing. And I realized that there was a, a market for books that existed outside the, the standard bookstores. Um, and so I put together a business plan and I couldn't believe it. The management in London uh, said, uh, yeah, we like this idea. Come down and talk to us about it. And um, long story short, I set up the special sales division, which was the first of its kind, uh, certainly uh, in, in England. It was the first, first special sales division. And so we looked for markets for books that were uh, outside of the norm. Uh, and that could be uh, anything from a book like uh, we did the Pim's Book of Polo, uh, uh, Pim's the, the uh, drink, and um, we did um, social stationery for uh, museums, uh, uh, and we did, um, the big thing we did, or I did, was uh, uh, look at um, the series of books that we were doing, coffee table books, uh, on high-end uh, knitting design patterns, um, which sounds sort of strange, but there was a, a guy called Keith Fassett, uh, and Keith Fassett was uh, on TV at the time in a program called Glorious Colour, which um, was was um, um, syndicated worldwide. And he was really quite quite this famous designer, and he did these amazing things. I mean, I'm talking about full-size coats that were hand-knitted. In, in high-end yarn. And so um, my department had this great idea to uh, um, approach the yarn manufacturer to sell our books, which would have their patterns in. So we sort of combined the coffee table book approach with actual patterns produced by the company that Kate Fassett uh, bought his yarn from. And at that time, you know, uh, that type of book, we'd sell three or 4,000 copies at um, equivalent to, uh, in, in money in, in those days, about $30. So these were expensive, beautiful coffee table books. And we, um, but we wouldn't sell a huge amount of them, but they were, they were good and they sold for many, many years. So there were good backlist titles. So I, when I started up the department, one of the first things I did was I uh, made a trip up to see uh, Rowan Yarns, which was uh, back in my old uh, uh, hunting grounds in the north of England, and said to them, why don't you sell these books directly to the same stores that you sell yarn to? And they, they said, oh, right. Cut a long story short again, I started selling them 5,000 copies up front of every single book we published and in return, they could put their own designs in. And we also then started calling the books the Rowan Yarns Book Of, or whatever. And then I made the jump to, we, we did a, a machine knitting book. And machine knitting was always really a down market product. Um, you know, it was for um, um, little old ladies wanting to do um, matinee coats for, for, for babies and things and socks or whatever. Um, but Brother, the, the, the company that did most of the knitting machines in those days, had a, uh, wanted to go into high-end machines. So I put together Brother, 
with, well, at that time it was Brother plus Jones. And um, I put them together with Rowan Yarns and we, we, we did this book called the Rowan uh, plus Brother plus Jones <laughs> book of machine knitting. And um, I sold uh, Brother 5,000 copies in England and 5,000 copies in the US as well. So this became the most profitable book that uh, at that time Century Hutchinson still had ever produced. Um, it was incredibly profitable. And, um, and so here we were um, jumping from three or 4,000 copy sales to almost 20,000 copies in, in sales. And so that got me very interested in the whole publishing process. And at that point, Rowan uh, said, and there were lots of other books that we did in, 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 in between times, but Rowan then said to me, why are we buying these books from you? Why aren't we publishing them? ourselves and I said well because you don't know how and they said well you do come and join us and uh, we'll give you you know 20% of the company that you can start but we'll fund it well I didn't have the heart to tell them I had no idea about publishing <laughs> I only was a salesman that's all I knew I knew how to sell I couldn't publish I knew nothing about publishing other than what I witnessed in all the years that I'd been publishing which at that time was about 15 years. But I said, yes, as you always do, you never say you can't do something. Oh yeah, yeah, I can do that. And so over the next few years, I became a publisher. <laughs> I learned everything from, uh, from the ground up. I, I, I learned uh, about um, uh, conceptualizing a book, structuring a book, uh, hiring writers, hiring photographers, uh, uh, getting the print, uh, the best print done, getting the book designed. Just, I just learned everything about publishing. And that was some of the best times of my life. Unfortunately, the parent company got into financial difficulty. And in the end, that sort of all came tumbling down, which is why I ended up coming to uh, emigrating to North America. Not before I did a little bit of a stint in corporate sponsorship. Um, primarily to do with with books so um, so that's sort of the publishing route and, and right towards the end there Random House came on board and uh, so I, I, I was with uh, Random House for um, about six months or so um, running the same department as, as I was before they purchased the, the company. But it was a great, great moment. And we, we you know, the first two books we published with Rowan Publishing Company Limited, uh, both uh, were, were great sellers. And we actually ended up uh, getting a full page review of the two books uh, in the Daily Telegraph, uh, which is one of the most prestigious newspapers, maybe after the times of London um, in, in England. So. Uh, so then I came to Canada and uh, I didn't know what to do, ended up doing some, uh, the idea I was going to come here to do uh, corporate sponsorship, but ended up doing economic development um, with a, an incredible guy um, uh, who was my mentor for many, many years, a guy called Ken Stratford. Um, just if you can't, I can't, you can't see it, but right on my desk, I have a picture of him. He died in 2016, um, but he's, right by my side uh, uh, and was always my great mentor. So I worked in economic development for a little while and then the economic development um, organization that Ken ran 
um, started getting into helping uh, young entrepreneurs uh, through a government-funded program. And I set up that program and ran that program. And that sort of morphed me into uh, writing business plans. And that morphed me into writing grant proposals and a whole bunch of, of, of other stuff. Um, and I actually set up a company called Your Corporate Writer. And at one point, we had five, five writers uh, uh, working for us. Um, but that ended because uh, I, was, I was paying my writers more than I was paying myself. And uh, it got like it was, it was more trouble than, than it was worth. So I went back to just writing um, for myself. And that's where I got into ghostwriting. I worked for a, I, I got approached to write a, a business, or two business plans for a, a, a couple called Karen and Ryan. Uh, Karen was from England and Ryan was from South Africa. And they were, that come to Canada to, to um, hope I'm not boring you with all this, but no, no, go ahead. sort of a long story. Um, <laughs> Makes my but, job easy. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, Karen and I had come to England to uh, uh, try to um, either uh, get residency uh, uh, or um, immigrate to, to either Canada or the US. And they needed um, a business plan, one for Canada, one for the US. And they were intending to uh, distribute uh, a device that had been invented by Karen's ex-husband, who is a guy called Professor Bill Nelson. Um, and if any of your viewers want to, to investigate Professor Bill Nelson, um, look up either Professor Bill Nelson or Desiree, Desiree Dubonnet. And um, as in as in the drink on YouTube, and you will be um, astounded at what you find, uh, and I'll explain that in a second. But um, after I finished the business plans for Karen and Ryan, they said we want uh, you know we need a book written about this device that uh, Professor Bill Nelson's produced. Uh, would you would you consider writing a book? And I said, well, I've never written a book. I've written articles, but never written a book. This was back in uh, two thousand. And uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, sure. I said, well, well, you'd have to go to Budapest in Hungary uh, because that's where he is. And I go, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, you know. And they were, they were an odd, delightful, but odd couple. And on the last day where we were putting the final touches and signing off on the business plans, at the very end, they said, oh, by the way, here you are. And they actually gave me an envelope. And I said, well, what's this? You've already paid me. And they go, oh, no, no, it's not money. It's tickets to Budapest. <laughs> and so I, I, I went to Budapest. And, uh, you know, I mean, I hadn't even got any plans. It was just like, you're going to Budapest next week. So I was like, whoa, this is not how we do business. You usually plan these things. And, you know, and I, and I said, we haven't even got a contract yet. And they said, how much money do you want? And I told them, and they said, yeah, fine, no problem. And so I went to Budapest and um, met... Well, there's a long story here. I won't tell the whole story. Uh, uh, but I was met at the airport by a bodyguard uh, driving a Ford Aerostar with Quebec plates in Hungary. And he was scared of the police. And I eventually ended up at Professor Bill Nelson's house. And Professor Bill Nelson turned out to be a, um, uh, a quantum 
physicist, oh no, a quantum mathematician, um, a cross-dressing quantum uh, mathematician teaching at Budapest University. And by day he was Professor Bill Nelson, and by, he, by night he was Desiree Dubonnet. And he created this machine called the Quantum Zeroid Consciousness Interface, the QXCI, which was supposed to be able to cure anything. Uh, including cancer and even autism, which was uh, somewhat of a, of a stretch. And so uh, I thought I was there to write a book about the device. I ended up writing a book about him. It ended up not even being a ghost-written book. He wanted my name on it, and it ended up being part fact and part fiction. And it was called The Promise Fulfilled. And you can still get it on Amazon, I believe. Um, God knows how, but you can. Um, and uh, it was the most weird experience of, of my life. I mean, he had a, an illegal transvestite nightclub in Hungarian resistance tunnels under the apartment block that he owned on the outskirts, the very rough outskirts of Budapest. And so that trip was the scariest trip ever, but it was a baptism of fire into what I thought was ghostwriting. At the end of the day, um, my name, ended up being on, on the book. So I, I sort of authored the book. Uh, and that was it. That's how I really got into, into writing. It's a long story, but that's pretty much the, the journey from um, being a trainee sales rep to being a, um, a published uh, author and, and, and established ghostwriter. There's so much to unpack there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dissect it in little parts in a bit. But um, one of the things with ghostwriting is there's always um, a fear, like a lot of, especially the clients that I take on, you know, there's, there's illegal activity, there's things that they're not proud of. Um, there's, and there's certain risks involved in exposing these stories. Was the professor worried that this book would, um, would have, undue attention to his activities? Oh yeah, that's why he put, that's why he put my name on it. <laughs> I mean, he had two bodyguards and he lived on the top floor of, the, of this apartment block and there was a fireman's pole from the top, from his apartment on the top, his penthouse apartment on the top to the next floor uh, that, that was hidden in a secret passageway so that he could escape. Um, yes, he was, um, he'd upset a lot of people um, uh, uh, especially the, the big pharma companies, apparently. Um, so yes, it was. There, there was always some risk. I, 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 I no longer really get involved in the, the more risky uh, ventures. Uh, uh, and I, I, I know that you've taken on a couple like that yourself. Uh, I'm too old, Joel. I, I'm, I'm, I'm old and too long in the tooth to want to, to do that. I can't run as fast as you. I mean, you know, I bet you, you, you could outrun me, you know. It's like anything else. If you're in, you know, in the forest and a bear comes, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just out, 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 have to outrun the people you're with. So going, I want to talk about um, uh, publishing companies. And it sounds like what you were doing was very entrepreneurial at the time and, you know, establishing joint ventures with other companies. And publishing companies are known uh, for being very 
like old school and not willing to change. And it sounds like if they had embraced, you know, some of the, uh, like the, some of the activities that you were doing more wholeheartedly, that they would be in a better position to, you know, to compete with companies like Amazon that are very entrepreneurial. Do you, can you talk a little bit about that? And, and do you believe that if, if that was actually the case that, you know, publishing companies would be in a better position than they are today? Oh, undoubtedly. Um, the, the, I think it was sort of probably around 2008, nine, the publisher just lost the plot, in my opinion. Um, they, they started, um, I was just thinking about the past, but, but let's stick with the future for now. I mean, they started um, not wanting to take any risk at all. So they, they only, started, only started dealing with authors that had social media followings uh, you know, and, and, and it used to be like 20,000. They wanted you to have 20,000 followers. Then it was 50,000 followers. Recently, I heard someone say they're now looking, you know, for any author to have 100,000 followers. And they expect the, the publisher, the, the author, to do a lot of the, the marketing. Um, it wasn't like that in my day. When I was working in mainstream publishing, um, at Century Hutchinson and then Random House, um, we used to look for talent. We used to look for talent and a really good idea, whether that was um, in, in, in as, as far as a novel is concerned, uh, a, a, a business book, a children's book, a, a book on sport, whatever it may be, we were looking for a really good idea and an author that had at least done some work towards conceptualizing his or her book idea and also structuring it in some way. And then we would take that from there and we would, you know, obviously we would have highly skilled editors that would help work through the book with the, with the author to make the book readable and accessible to the general public. And then we would market the heck out of that book. Uh, and we did that with, with a lot of authors that are, are well known now we created those authors. It's not that it doesn't happen now. Um, they, they, you know, trying to get a book published as a first time author is extremely difficult. It's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult. And uh, they, they have this myopic um, um, view of, of publishing. And, you know, yes, uh, if you're a Kardashian, you can get a, a, a book published, but is it any good? Um, so, I think that one of the ways that they could really look at things is to be a little bit more creative and innovative in how they approach books, especially in my area. I don't write novels. I, I predominantly do business books, business books, how to business books, prescriptive business books, um, uh, business memoirs. I do some other memoirs because I'm very interested in loss, grief, depression, mindfulness, um, all of those types of subjects. So I do some of those as well. Uh, uh, and I'm currently writing a, a book on trust, for instance, which is a fascinating subject to me, given the circumstances uh, that, we, that we see every day in, in, in the press, you know, with, with um, you know, 
even COVID and, uh, and, and climate change and, and the whole trust issue is huge. Um, so, but if publishers could take some time to create alliances with organizations that would, would sell books, that they could pre-sell huge amounts of books. If it's a business book, like I, I um, recently wrote, co-wrote with, uh, was it, again, it was originally going to be a, a, a ghost-written book, but in the end, the author wanted my name on it. Um, uh, we wrote this book called um, Built Not Born, it's a billionaire's, a self-made billionaire's no-nonsense guide for entrepreneurs. And uh, he actually um, got his, um, the company that he founded, he's still chairman of the board, but he's no longer the CEO. But he talked to the CEO. In fact, I was with him at the time. Uh, so we talked to the CEO. And they actually bought, I think, believe about 60 or 70,000 copies of a special edition, a soft cover edition, to give away to their customers. And um, to their new customers predominantly, and to some staff. Uh, and so that was a, that's a great way to, to get to the point where you've got some pre-sales, you're already making a bit of a profit before you even put the book into the, into the, into the bookstores. And also, all publishing is economy of scale. The more, more you publish, the more you can, sorry, the more you can print, the cheaper the unit cost. So that's why we used to do book clubs so, so much in, in the past, in, my, in, in the mainstream publishing days, the heyday of publishing. You know, we almost give about 80% discount or 95%, 90%, 90 discount sometimes to a, a book club that would take 45,000 copies of a hardback because that 45,000 lowered our unit cost tremendously. So we made more profit on the, the, the copies that we did sell to the bookshops. So, yeah, I think that the publishing needs to be more creative. What do you think, because there, there seems to be some sort of mind shift or mentality shift where, you, you know, they would take on these authors and they would actually invest in them. And now they're not, they just want a sure thing. What, what do you think was the, was it Amazon that was the deciding factor in that? Were they just scared to to have the same um the same business model or, and what yeah what do you think went through those publishing um ceos minds it's difficult to say but because it happened you know when we had the huge massive economic downturn and they they mainstream publishers laid off a lot of editors uh i don't think they had the staff to to do that anymore uh, and, and I think they just realized that it was probably a lot easier to, uh, to, you know, to, to do that. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't some still, you know, a lot of excellent books coming out, uh, coming out. Um, but more and more they are coming out from a very select group of individuals. Um, and I think what the publishers are missing is some pure and raw talent. That, that, that is out there and some people that have got, some authors that have got some phenomenal ideas and depth of knowledge that don't have that prerequisite social media following. Um, 
uh, and, 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 you know, maybe you know, they don't have the means to get it either. In some cases, you know, um, you can do it retroactively um, in, in as much as I've got an author at the moment who, who has been out of the business world for um, probably, you know, almost 20 years. He was hugely successful, uh, but he's been out of the limelight for 20 years and is now rebuilding his social media following. Well, not rebuilding it because he never had it uh, because 20 years ago it wasn't such a big thing. So he's now building his social media following and doing very well. And, and you know, and so we're going to, to publishers saying, OK, we don't have a media social media following, but we're putting some investment into getting one. Um, but to go back to your original question, I really. I, I don't know what their thinking was. I, I, I'm loath to, to, to blame them for, you know, just, or, or, or to accuse them of just trying to make more money. Um, I think, I think it's probably a lot more complex than that. And, you know, one, one has to realize that publishers have to make money and, and we all know that, you know, uh, well, in my day, I, you know, when I was, was, was in, in senior management in publishing, um, in, in my day, we always used to say, you know, 20% uh, of the books made all our profit uh, and 20% lost all our profit at the other end. And the middle section, the, the, the books that just did okay, was really where the profit was. And it was those in the backlist titles, the stock titles that just kept turning over every year. Um, that, that made the money because it's very hard to tell. You've got the 20% that take off, the 20% that bomb, and you've got all those in the middle that just about break even and sell for a few years. So uh, going back to, you moved to uh, Canada. Did you move directly to Victoria? Uh, directly to Vancouver Island. Right. Okay. But not to, I was, I was in Nanaimo originally. Uh, because only because my brother was was here, so mm. uh, and uh, and my parents, so. And then, so you went into economic development, and then where you started a publishing company, and it's, it's Blue Beetle Publishing. Well, Blue um, Beetle Books. Blue, Blue Beetle, Beetle Books. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that, and um, why you decided to start it, and what your clientele were? Well, I started that in 2010, and, and what I was finding was that I had several uh, of the authors I was, I were working with, I was working with um, really didn't have any hope or, or any desire in, in many cases to go the mainstream publishing route. And so they were asking me uh, to, whether I could help them um, design the book, uh, uh, get it, get get a, a jacket designed for them, to uh, get an ISBN number, uh, and also help get it printed. And so I set up Blue Beetle Publishing originally to try to fulfil that need. And so for many of my clients, uh, not not so much in the last um, probably five, three or four years, because I I now tend to be working predominantly with high-end mainstream authors that are, have already got or, or will get mainstream publication, uh, mainstream publishers to publish them. But, but my, 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 in, in, in that period of time, 
uh, I had these authors that, that wanted the whole package. So I'd give them a turnkey um, package, which meant I'd help them conceptualize the book, uh, structure it so that we had a, a, a table of contents, write the book with them, get it designed and actually deliver copies to, to their door. And, uh, and also put our Blue Beetle Books uh, um, logo imprint on the jacket. So it didn't look as if it was self-published, even though predominantly it was. And this worked very well. My, one of my first um, clients that took advantage of that in, um, uh, well, I, I actually did, did my first one. I, I've got to correct myself here a bit. I did my first one in 2005. So, but, but I did it without Blue Beetle Books. I did it, and that gave me the reason to start Blue Beetle Books. Um, but the first one was a guy called Tim Paziak, who is a financial planner in, in, um, in Canada. Uh, he's nationally known now. He wasn't then. And he uh, works solely with high-income high clients, doctors and dentists. So we, we did, I've actually done um, one book, which I've written four times for him. You know, we've done new editions and split it into two different editions. And then I did another book. So I've done really five books with, with, with Tim. And he just needed it. He didn't want to sell it. He wanted to sell it himself. And he wanted to use it uh, on his speaking circuit um, when he went around and spoke at medical conferences. And so really it was a, it was a case of a, a supply and demand. There was a demand there for me to help people do the whole thing. And so I did that with, um, we've done that with several books. And then I decided to enlarge Blue Beetle books and we started doing books for cities. Um, we would go into uh, a city and um, we would uh, um, get the, the mayor and council on side. We didn't ask for any money. We just wanted their support. And then we would go out and we would approach major companies in that town or city and say to them that we'd, we were going to do this book to promote the economy. And um, we were happy to put a double page corporate profile in the, the, in the book at the end of the book, if they would just buy in advance 220 copies at 40% discount off retail. And it was an easy sell, you know, there's no, we didn't put logos in, they weren't ads, they were part of the story of, of, the, of the town or city. But it meant that we had, and again, this is going back to what you were just asking about how publishers can be more creative. Um, and so what it allowed people uh, to do was that A, we could guarantee a minimum print on the 5,000 copies, uh, which got the price down to a price that was, was, was great. And, if we sold, sold all of those copies to people that were going to use them for, uh, or not all of them, but if we sold, say, 75% or 80% of those copies to companies that were going to distribute them freely uh, as promotional items, we had our distribution locked down. So we didn't have to sell 5,000 copies you know, to the public. A lot of them were going to be given away for free, but we'd get the distribution guaranteed out there. and. This, this worked like a dream. There were high-end, beautiful color coffee table books. And um, we always sold out. 
and and they they did tremendously well and they were very profitable um you know for us and the, the people that, that purchased them and of course the the city we give the city 500 copies for free just for their support just for them to to say yes we endorse this book we you know we we support it that's all we asked and and they get 500 copies Everyone won, and the, the city got an economic development tool that really worked for them. Can we, so you primarily write business books, but you said that you also write on uh, subjects like depression and trust. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, those seem very separate issues and, and very different. So can you talk about what uh, inspired you to write on, you know, those like, issues like depression and trust well it, this is very personal um but uh i saw su i suffered i suppose i still do suffer from depression and um it was um uh, about six years ago that my my uh, and, and none of the pills ever worked for me and um it wasn't severe depression it wasn't like um suicidal or anything like that it was just this ongoing lingering pervasive depression depression and I, i'd suffered it from, from it for years it runs in my family um but uh i had a, a doctor say you know like let's try something different there's a, a a new um program that i can send you on it's just six weeks uh two two and a half hours or three hours per evening over a six week period and um it's brand new it's, it's a great program uh and you know you know, you'll, you'll actually be one of the first to go through it, but I've studied the program. I, I really think it's great. And so I went on the program and um, I met, you know, a group of other people who were going through similar stuff to me and, and some of them were depressed. They had, uh, uh, they were, had real anxiety issues. And we learned um, mindfulness and we, were, we learned uh, meditation predominantly. There were other things. But then I got really hooked on um, meditation and mindfulness. And they basically transformed my life. They, um, uh, I, I meditate every day. And I, I, I try to be mindful throughout my day. I try to focus on mindfulness and, and uh, my meditation practices. Uh, I've continued for the last six years. And now uh, I, I cannot say probably that 90% of my depression is, 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 is gone. You know, I, I do have my down days like anybody else, but uh, I almost think that these days, um, that, 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 you know, I'm, I'm probably at a level of, of just everybody that's, you know, anybody that's uh, so-called normal. Um, so that got me really into reading uh, dozens of books about mindfulness, about depression. And then I got approached by someone to write a book on loss and grief, which I'm in the middle of doing. And um, that fascinated me that loss and grief obviously have a, 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 a major factor in depression. And so um, it's just a, a, a personal subject that, uh, that I'm, um, if I can help write, if I can write or well, help authors write books that help other people go you know, get the better of what I had to try and struggle through then that, to me, that's a win-win. Can you describe your meditation practices a little bit? 
Uh, yeah, I, I, well, I do all sorts of meditation practices. Um, uh, I, you know, I can meditate while I'm walking the dog, um, in, in which case uh, I'm usually um, silently um, repeating a mantra. Um, and that changes, that mantra can change depending on the mood or, or what I want to achieve. But predominantly, it's really simple. Um, usually sometime in the morning, depending on, uh, unfortunately, uh, I know like you, I, I deal with a lot of US clients on the East Coast. Uh, in fact, I would say probably 90% of my clients are US. So sometimes when I wake up in the morning, uh, I'm inundated with emails that need to be um, dealt with immediately. If I don't have those emails, the first thing I do is walk the dog, have breakfast, and then meditate. If not, I try to meditate um, you know, mid-morning. Um, but sometime, hopefully before lunch, I'll meditate. Uh, and basically, um, I, it, it can be as simple as just sitting there and uh, in silence uh, and uh, uh, sitting up, upright and just focusing on the breath. It, that's it, at its simplest. But also I find that probably the most difficult <laughs> um, because you have monkey brain that, that just wants to go all over the place and doesn't, wanna, doesn't want you to settle, settle down. And that's natural because it's part of our uh, survival instinct for the brain not to shut down and for the brain to be aware of everything that's going on and to be thinking things through. Um, it's, it's not uh, part of our psyche to turn that brain off. Um, so it takes a little bit of skill to do it. Um, but often I'll use um, guided meditations um, and uh, there are hundreds of thousands out there. If anybody wants to look up guided meditations, um, they're, they're, I use one at the moment called Insight Timer, which has hundreds of them for free. If you pay more, you can do different things. You have a broader selection. You can pause and go back. And uh, it, the free version is, is very basic. You play it and that's it. Um, but they have a lot. But they're not the only one. There are, there are, there are dozens and dozens. There's calm. Um, there's just loads out there. And if you use a guided meditation, it helps you to keep focused. And it helps that monkey brain uh, a little bit get under, get under control. Um, uh, one of my favorites uh, uh, for the last um, month uh, or so, I discovered is a guy called David G. Uh, one word, David, and then J-I. Uh, I love David G. His voice is just uh, mesmerizing. And, uh, and so you, you go through the guided medita meditations and, and they will help you then also take some of the elements of a guided meditation into your own private meditation. And so, yeah, I do that every day. Um, and, and a lot of people tell me, well, I don't have time to do that, Mike. I don't have time to do that. And I go, uh, uh, you know, and they say, how, how long do you do it for? 20 minutes. You know, well, I haven't got 20 minutes. You, you, and I, you know, I, my answer is you really don't have 20 minutes. Okay. Then you need to meditate for 30 because, um, if you haven't got time, you, you, you need meditation more. But the real big win on meditation, uh, and this is the big discovery for me, was that after I meditate, my productivity goes up considerably. I'm not going to give a percentage, I don't know. But it goes up considerably. You're more focused and able to work. 
So if you sit there and you can't work, you've got writer's block, whatever, and you can't seem to focus, you meditate, you'll come back, and the mind will have just calmed down, you'll have given it a bit of a rest, you'll go back, and all of a sudden, you'll be focused, and you'll find it all comes a whole lot easier. So if you haven't got time to meditate, you need to meditate more. I think now would be a good time to talk about your writing practices. Uh, do you write every day? And if so, what time do you like to write? I treat writing as a job. Um, it, it, you know, I could, I mean, I have a, a really nice home office. It's big. It's like, I don't know, 300 square foot office with its own bathroom and, and, uh, and storage room. Uh, in my house, so it's it's great. So my my commute is is very quick. It takes about like uh, thirty seconds, uh, and I treat it just like a job. I I get up, I take the dog for a walk, I have breakfast, uh, I go and clean my brush my teeth, I come down uh, usually by eight thirty, and then I put a full day work as if I was in an office. Uh, I have a coffee break. Uh, at 10.30 usually, uh, which is why I suggested 11 for this. <laughs> I have my coffee at 10.30, 15 minutes, in which I read the Times Colonist funnies, the, the comics, and switch off. Um, in in um, Either just before coffee or just after coffee, I'll do my meditation. Uh, and then I go right back into the whole afternoon. Uh, um, I have a bit of a break uh, about... Uh, 4.15 to, to walk my dog, uh, which is also another form of meditation because you get out, you get some fresh air. Then I come back and I do another hour or two. Um, so I work just a full day. Um, I suppose if I was in an office, walking the dog might be, might be a little, you know, uh, if I was in a commercial office. But other than that, I, I work every day. Um, uh, it, the, 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 and the problem with, with being self-employed, of course, is you work on vacations as well. I just had a week away with my grandson, my wife and my grandson. And unfortunately, you know, they had to go down to the beach a few times while I did two or three hours of urgent work. So um, if you were working for someone else, you probably wouldn't do that. But I'm a real horrible boss. I want to talk to you about, so you've got a couple, um, I'm going to call it the not series. Um, so there's how not to sell, how not to manage people. And then, you know, this one, you, which you mentioned already, which is a, probably a little bit different, but uh, built, not born. Can you talk a little bit about those books and why you wrote them? Well, built, not born was, was um, I got approached by a, um, a writing agency, uh, which I'd put my name for. Well, actually, uh, Marcia Leighton-Jones mm -hmm. of the Association of Ghostwriters, who you know, um, she put me forward for uh, working with um, a, New York, uh, a New York City agency. And um, so they approached me with uh, a, a, a sort of a, a difficult job um, to work for a multi-billionaire to, to write his book. And, and the difficulty was that the the chap was um, um, wasn't really computer literate. Was an older gentleman, 
and really didn't want to do it by phone and so uh, wanted someone to go down to Florida uh, and, and be there for a, a couple of months. And, um, and so it was a tough one and uh, I put my name forward and, uh, and, and managed to, to get the job. Uh, and I, and I, I wanted to do it because it sounded fascinating. Uh, and uh, he, he spends, he, well, his main home is in Naples, Florida. Um, and his, his um, second home um, is in Rochester, New York. And so the idea of going down to Naples for a couple of months uh, to, to, to work in the sun in winter uh, didn't, you know, and this was January, didn't sound too bad at all. <laughs> and so... Um, I went down and uh, he was a, a, a tough guy. He's a, he was a, a irascible sort of tough guy. Uh, but I ended up loving the guy uh, and uh, uh, ended up in total, I've probably been down to, to Naples and Rochester. I've probably spent over three months uh, on site with, with, uh, with Tom and I recently just finished his autobiography, uh, The Italian Kid Did It. Uh, and uh, that is uh, um, going to be published in 2021. Uh, he's not chosen the publisher yet. He has offers and uh, they're, they're still under negotiation. But um, uh, what I can say is that, that uh, it, will be, it will be published and uh, in, in late 2021. Uh, so, uh, uh, so that has been great. I wrote two books for him, uh, Built Not Born and then the, the autobiography. Um, it was just going to be a, a business memoir, but it was too big a story. And uh, the, the, the agent, uh, literary agent, wanted the, the business side told first. Uh, so that's sort of why we did that. The how-to was, funny enough, it's by... Um, I was approached, again, through the agency uh, to be commissioned to write these two how not to books. These are fascinating. These are not ghost written. These are purely uh, under my own name. And there's going to be initially, I think, four uh, how not to books in the series. I wrote two of them um, on subjects that I knew well. One was sales and one was the management and leadership, well, predominantly management. Um, two subjects that I've, I've um, well, sales, I've been a salesperson all my life. Management, I've done a lot of management over the years, um, managing teams. So I felt that there were both subjects. But HarperCollins Leadership, who's publishing them, had this great idea for this series uh, that, that was going to take a more lighthearted look at the topic and start with each, each sort of, well, have, um, you know, about 40 different, how not to's, uh, uh, you know, things that you, you really shouldn't do if you're selling or whatever. And they, the, the idea was that we, we tell a story about someone who did it all wrong, that was disastrous. Uh, and then at the end of that, say, okay, what could this person have done better? How could they have prevented, uh, you know, the disaster from happening? And, uh, and so, uh, I, I went out and uh, I, I had probably, for the sales one, I had probably a, at least half the stories that, that were my own stories or stories that, that I'd heard or seen 
firsthand. And the rest were um, people I reached out to uh, through, have you ever heard of um, Harrow? Help a reporter yeah, out. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I went through Harrow and put a, 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 a request out there and got several people that were in sales management or had been sales reps who came back and said, oh my God, yes, Mike, I, I had a disastrous sale once and, and it was, oh, there were some hilarious stories. Some I couldn't even put in the book because they, they were more to do with um, a dog poo on their shoe going into a, a, a sales presentation, which... Although funny is not something you can do much of. No, instructive, yeah. If you don't recognize it until your feet are under the boardroom table. <laughs> so it was, it was hilarious. Um, and so the book is, is, is very lighthearted in that way. You've got all these stories of, of just stuff that people do completely wrong. You know, they, they just go about things in, in a total wrong way. But how to also to, to, to figure that out and what you, what you could have done, what you should have done that, that maybe would have, would have uh, helped you get the sale. Management, same thing. Uh, horrendous management stories. A lot of them, again, from my own direct experience. Um, a lot from, my, I have a, a friend called uh, Ingrid Vaughan who is a, a, an HR consultant. And so she gave me some awesome stories, uh, um, you know, and we changed all the names and the places and, uh, and, and even countries to, <laughs> to protect the guilty. Um, oh, and the innocent, I suppose, but also the, very much the guilty. And, and they're just, they're just, they are lighthearted. They're very short books. They're only about 145 pages. Um, they're quick reads. They're, they're meant to be the sort of read, you, you, you know, that you could... Um, uh, uh, read on an airplane going from Vancouver to Toronto. You should be, you know, you'd be easy to read the book and, and have a good laugh, but also uh, uh, stick into your head all those things that maybe you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe that's why, you know, the, the, one of your staff members is just acting out and, you know, maybe it's you, not them. <laughs> What's so the they're great books. I, 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 they come out on August the 26th, so they're, they're almost out. They're, they're available, I believe, on Amazon already. Yes, yeah. What's the worst sales story that you have heard that's maybe it could be in the book or, or maybe it's just something that you've, you've heard? Oh, uh, worst sales story. Oh, uh, got me now. I can't. There's so many of them and... and you know, um, you know, worst ones. Um, well, I can tell you a funny one that I put in the book that, um, uh, yeah, I, well, it's not really, you don't learn much from it, but it was, it was very funny. There was this guy um, who was in, in book sales. And when I'm telling you this, I'll probably think of something else. But um, the trouble is when you write books, Joel, as you know, you write them and then you forget them because you can't have all that, all that sort of stuff in your head while you're trying to write the next book, you know. Mm -hmm. So you sort of push it out. But um, there was one lovely story that I, I put in the book uh, uh, about not being pompous. And uh, there was this sales rep who was the most pompous dude that I'd ever uh, come across. And he, he also happened to work for probably the, the, you know, the best publisher at the time and had the best books to sell. So 
he had a captive audience in as much as when he went to bookstores and wholesalers, they really couldn't not see him and they couldn't not buy what he had to sell because, you know, they were good stuff. But he was so pompous. And I remember on one occasion, he went to see a wholesaler and this wholesaler was um, um, uh, actually a member of the British aristocracy, a, a low level member of the British aristocracy. Uh, and the guy was just, uh, I loved him, him and I got on like so, so well. He was even ill once uh, uh, and he, he insisted that I come to his bedside so he could give me my monthly order. You know, that's how much I got on with him. But he didn't like this pompous guy. He really didn't. And he, he worked out of this old, old building. And um, this pompous guy was, uh, uh, I've, and I, I know his real name and I can't remember what name I gave him in the book. So I've got to be careful not to spurt out his actual name. But anyway, he was sat in, you all sat in this little arm, uh, leather armchair in this guy's office. And he sat at his, his old antique desk. And uh, he, he, he was telling me this story. He says, oh, he said he was going on and on and he was pontificating about this and that. And I was, I was sat at my desk thinking, I wish this guy would shut up. Oh, God, I wish he'd get to the point. I just, ah. Oh. And he said, all of a sudden, the roof right above his head collapsed. <laughs> Only above his head completely collapsed and showered him in, in plaster and dust and everything else. And this guy was always immaculately dressed. And, 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 and this, um, the, my, 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 my customer just was creasing up with laughter and told the story to everyone. And, and the, the, the repping question demanded that he, you know, the guy uh, bought him a new suit. And he said it was the best money I ever spent. <laughs> so like, yeah, don't be pompous. Is, is, uh, <laughs> that reminds me kind of like Eeyore and the cloud, the rain cloud that kind of follows him around. <laughs> you know? yeah. there's, there's stories like that in there that, that really point to, the, to point to certain issues that you got to be really careful when you're selling that you're not, you know, boring someone to death and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, just being pompous, you know, there, there's a, a certain humility that you need uh, when you, when you sell. Um, so that was just, was, I, to me, that was one of the funniest stories. Um, That's a great story. Guy, uh, uh, that I did name in the book because I, I know he'd love it. A guy called Tom Elliott, who uh, had a, a sales manager that was just um, awful. And, uh, um, he, he accidentally ran him over. <laughs> uh, so, 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 you know, that again is, that, I, I can't remember if that's in the management book because it was about poor management as anything else. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's, some, some, you know, there's some funny stories in there. I like to wrap up uh, with this question. Um, it is, what is your favorite book or a book that you like to gift a lot? Um, my favorite, I, I love reading novels because um, I write nonfiction all of the time. So um, I, I, when, I, when I relax, I like to read books. I think my favorite book of all time is from my favorite author, John Irving, and uh, A Son of the Circus. I think it's, 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 um, it's probably not one of his, his best known novels, 
or, or even the one that got the most accolades. But I love the novel. I think it's just fascinating. It's weird. It's mystical. It's uh, crazy in parts. Um, and so I've always loved A Son of the Circus and, and always look forward to, to, to reading it again. What's it about? Uh, well, it, it, it's, it's a sweeping novel about circuses in India <laughs> uh, and people and, and uh, attitudes and, and, oh yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just very interesting. And non-fiction, I'm going to surprise you. Um, and I had to think about this a, a bit because, you know, I, I knew you'd ask. <laughs> and I, I had to think about it a bit. And non-fiction, non-fiction books are, are ephemeral. Um, you, you know, what, what you like and is your favorite book today may not be your favorite book tomorrow. It, it, you know, uh, your opinions change and your, your, your um, perception changes, your perspective changes. And so it's all, all different. And so when I really came down to it, I thought, what's the one book I'd want to take to a desert island? And um, it's funny enough, it's a book, I don't even know if you can even get it anyway, it's Paul Graves' Golden Treasury. And it's a book of poems, of classic poems. Uh, but not, all the, not always the obvious ones. You know, it, it's, it's got a lot of different ones in it for over a lot of different periods. And so, I, I, yeah, I, I, that's a book that I pick up on an extremely regular basis and have done since I got it uh, uh, given to me at school. Uh, and as you can see, you know, I'm long past school days. And so this book is, is uh, uh, over 50 years old and uh, uh, I still absolutely love it. The other reference book I love, uh, <laughs> again, typical just being a writer is the Chicago Manual of Style, which you've got, you've probably got sat on your shelf, which mm -hmm. is the style guide that publishers um, rely on. And, um, uh, but I do like it. I, I, I love uh, dipping into, into it. And uh, 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 whenever anything comes up that I haven't um, maybe come across ever or for a long while, some arcane piece of, of grammar or, or, or uh, capitalization or, or whatever it may be. Uh, I love dipping into the book and it's very risky for me because once I pick that off my shelf, which is literally just off here, it's a, there's a bookcase just here guys. And, and, and it's there. Uh, if I dip into it, uh, an hour can go by <laughs> and I realize I'm not writing anymore. I'm just looking at grammar and <laughs> punctuation and, and other weird stuff, you know, like how, how, how associate, uh, how um, uh, military um, ranks have to be, you know, uh, referred to and things, you know. Fascinating, fascinating book. But boring to most people, I would imagine. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure. For people who want to reach out to you and contact you, where is a good place for them to go? Just go to my website, um, www.mp, for Michael Peter, mpwix.com. And um, if you email me, you might get, I get like about two, 300 spam messages a day. Yeah, because uh, I wrote uh, um, um, I wrote a column for a business magazine for 10 years and uh, my email address was always at the bottom 
And um, unfortunately, they decided uh, a few years ago to publish 10 years worth of my articles with that address <laughs> on the bottom. And so it got mined and uh, therefore I had to set up a spam filter. So you may get a spam message, but uh, I usually check them uh, or you can answer. It'll come from a company called Spam Arrest and you can just uh, click a button and, and it will still get to me or use the, the contact form on the website. Happy to talk to anyone. Um, one of the things I believe is that um, if anybody calls me, uh, uh, I'm always happy to give them advice, even if I, you know, I can't do the book or it's not for me or I'm too busy, which I usually am. I'm always happy to give advice and help and also pass uh, on um, names of other ghostwriters that I know who I think uh, uh, would be suitable for that particular book. So always, always happy to give advice. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mike, and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.